Hi, everyone, and welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel hosted by the New Books Network. I'm Victoria Lubashko, and I'm one of the hosts for this channel. Hello, Dr. Wahlberg, and welcome to New Books in Asian Studies channel. Thank you for agreeing to talk to us about your book, Good Quality, The Routinization of Sperm Banking in China, published by University of California Press. My pleasure, my pleasure. So um, let's start by getting to know you and your work largely defined better. So uh, I was wondering whether you could tell us more about how you came to this project. Um, you know, what got you interested in China and this particular topic? Yes, well, serendipity, to be perfectly honest. So I had finished a PhD some, well, about uh, 12 years ago now at the, the London School of Economics, having worked in, in Vietnam uh, on uh, traditional herbal medicine. And right after the PhD, I was, of course, look, looking for jobs to apply for. And right when, um, you know, I had submitted, there was a, a position as a research fellow on a, a quite a large EU finance project on ethics in biomedical research. And one of the partners in that project, um, uh, Professor Lu Guangzhou, t- turned out to be one of the pioneers of IVF in China. So basically, through that project, I met her. And, uh, you know, by the end of that project, I was convinced that I really wanted to continue working in China and specifically uh, working at her clinic, which uh, by now is the world's largest fertility clinic and associated sperm bank. So it was by chance, but uh, I guess this is how things often go in our our branch. Sure, absolutely. Uh, I have my own stories as well. And I I think everybody has their own, um, you know, curve of, of discovery to say so. Um, yeah, that that's really fascinating. And um, actually, this was one of the questions that I had later on. But I since you mentioned, um, uh, you know, Professor uh, Lu Guang, uh, Guangxin and Zhang Lizhu uh, as well, um, I, I'll just go ahead and ask you now about the role that they play, um, these two figures play in your work and in the book as well, uh, because they seem to have been, you know, the most important people that actually pushed forward the development of um, assisted reproductive technologies in China um, and also medicine at large, uh, if we if we think at a bigger scale. So, um, you know, um, I was just curious to find more about uh, their their roles in your own development, but also, you know, what uh, in China. Yeah, no, absolutely. So uh, the, the first thing to be said is that if... if uh, uh, you know, obviously the book is telling as part of what the book is doing. It's kind of telling the history of the development of um, uh, assisted reproductive technologies in China. And these two figures, Professor Liu and Professor Zhang, are the, the central figures. So the first thing to be said is that these are two women, women scientists. Um, and if you look at the field of reproductive technologies across the world, this is rare. I mean, it's usually men who get you know all the the glory and the the, the, the front pages. So that's first thing to be said that you know uh, to to have such strong figures and both of them uh, as women scientists uh, i think uh, is really an important part of the of the story that i think the book tells yes yes absolutely yes um yeah I, in my you know in my own readings i have very rarely as you said discovered uh, women figures that have um been uh, the public figure uh, of a certain technology development or you know a certain field usually they they do play a, a more secondary role, um, you know, and that 
leads to further discussions about gender role in science or yeah, you know, and hum- humanities as well you know but um, but definitely I think it's um, it, it has to do a lot with with the way you know the late 70s and 80s uh, developed in China yeah. right and also the fact that uh, you know um, it, well th- th- there's some coincidence as always of course but uh, uh, that that uh, professor Zhang had come through obstetrics gynecology as as a kind of uh, medical doctor who was uh, you know consulting or women were consulting for for all kinds of menstruation problems and the like on the one hand and then you know we had uh, professor Lu's father who was a prominent medical geneticist at the time and who decided to uh, you know in in uh, t- together with her daughter, Professor Lu Guangzhou, that that he would begin training her, and and she then got the kind of uh, let's say the, the the call to 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 be the one in in Hunan province to to start. So it's a combination, I think, of of chance, but also the 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 the, the, the traditions of of the different uh, sub uh, divisions within uh, of the specialities within medicine in China at the time in the seventies and eighties. Yeah. Sure, absolutely. And it's fascinating. Uh, and uh, you mentioned this in the introduction and the first chapter at large. Um, it's fascinating the way in which um, two, uh, you know, medical figures to, uh, you know, a researcher and a medical doctor came to uh, be very interested in this particular uh, aspect but through completely different routes and their their challenges were quite different and you know the 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 um the pause that uh, dr lu had to and you know helped uh, with the assisted reproduction of of the panda population and then you know so all of these um were so different but in the end uh, it it kind of coalesced yes uh, yeah exactly right. so it think- yeah mm-hmm. Yeah, yes. no, I think that, you know, in writing this book and doing the research, this to me was probably one of the most fascinating aspects of it was, you know, you know, because I was able to to meet the, the people I was and, and gain the access I, I, I could, you know, to get these very candid stories and reflections on how, you know, how things were at the time. I mean, it. People, you know, listening to this podcast might be familiar with the the, the, the barefoot doctor program that, that the Chinese government rolled out, um, communist party rolled out, you know, to provide health care to all. But in some ways, this is really barefoot science. You know, it's um, with the most basic of, of, of conditions, you know, they were able to to carry out um, a quite astounding, uh, you know, very, you know, high um high-end, uh, high-tech, um, modern science. And and to be able, and, you know, and as I indeed write about, a lot of it is kind of probably embellished in, in that nostalgic sense of remembering how, uh, you know, how things were. But at the same time, there's an important point uh, to be told, and that's one of the core contributions, I hope, of the book, uh, that, you know, regardless of where technologies are invented, um, there's always a story to be told in terms of, in certain locales, and in this case, it's Hunan province or Beijing uh, within China, that we should not neglect to tell the story of, uh, of development, because even if it's invented in another place, at some point it's, yes, introduced, but that's not the same as just magically, you know, starting to use a pre-existing technology. 
it really has to be developed. And and the stories that I was able to kind of chronicle in the book, I think, really give us a, a, a quite a special insight into that time. Other scholars have also con- contributed to that story, I'm, uh, so I'm not alone. But for sure, I, I, I do think that my book is is really providing some unique insights into how science was possible uh, under very constrained con- conditions. Sure, absolutely. And I think it's a very important point to make this this idea of, of uh, developing the technology or even the mindset that comes along with it um, in a particular locale. Um, because, uh, and again, at the in one of the stories that uh, you have in the book, um, I think uh, one of the, the people talking says that, you know, uh, using the laparoscopic method was very tedious and it had, you know, it was great the way it was described, but when it came actually in the hospital and you had to use it to extract uh, the the ova, then that created a lot of problems. Um, so, you know, it's not this very romantic idea of you just take the technology and then you start using it the next day in a new uh, context or, or in a new culture. Uh, it's definitely uh, way more complex than that. And um, in my opinion, I think that it's a very interesting and needed to be told story. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, you, you do that in, in the book and um, it, you know, in the six chapters alongside the introduction and conclusions, um, also, a, a short coda at the end. You know, the story unfolds uh, in its in its different um, uh, you know from different angles. And um, in the introduction, you make it clear that artificial insemination by donor or and assisted reproductive technology, as well as the in vitro fertilization, have stood in contradiction to the family planning policies in China. Yes. Yes. Right. So since the late 1970s, and yet these technologies have been acclimated and contextualized to the excellent circumstances. So um, I think that's also, um, you know, another very important point that the book makes. So I was wondering whether you could tell us more about this perceived contradiction and how it unfolded after uh, late 70s. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, this was, to, to be honest, because, uh, you know, I, uh, when I, I first visited China in, uh, it was 2007, uh, in connection with that project I mentioned, I, I had the chance to visit the, this fertility clinic in Shangsha. And, you know, to be honest, at that stage, you know, of course, I, I knew about China, had read anthropology from China because I'd been working in Vietnam. Uh, social science from the region, but I wasn't a, a, a China expert in any way. So this was what struck me immediately. I mean, how can they be mass producing babies? And it's mass production. Um, uh, at, you know, in this country where I thought the priorities were, you know, do everything possible to restrict, limit um, uh, the, the number of children uh, born. So my thought was, well, they're probably, you know, in some ways uh, have are quite fine with the fact that some couples just, you know, for whatever reasons are unable to conceive. Now, of course, that's a very sim- simplified way of thinking about things. And of course, things are more complex. But indeed, as I show in the book, this was something that the pioneers, the ones who were developing these technologies in China, definitely had to take into account. So, you know, they didn't necessarily... Um, 
you know, speak uh, loudly around town that they were doing this research. Some of it was a bit clandestine. Um, when they applied for funding, uh, they didn't explicitly say it was to help infertile couples. They more linked it with uh, national objectives to improve population quality, uh, which were very explicit in, in the, the laws and regulations of China. So they found their ways to kind of... Um, package almost or, or, or sell the work that they were doing in ways which were more in uh, in chime with the you know the political uh, goals of the time and and for sure in the 70s and especially 80s when they were working you know most of their colleagues would would be shaking their heads as I as I kind of show uh, through their recollections and saying well what, what are you guys doing you should be working on contraception or uh, you know other um, uh, health aspects of, of of reproduction, not on how to make more babies. So, so it definitely shaped uh, both their career trajectories, but also the the actual science in in China. Right, as, absolutely, and um, I think also the mindset of 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 the population to a certain extent that you know came into contact with uh, with their families and you know the the medical environment at that time, and I think that unfolds uh, later in chapters uh, five and six. But you know, just to to preface now that um, it's also a change in in the way um, making babies, making you know. Um, a, uh, making life right um, started to change in late 70s in China and it was influenced of course by national policies but also by this this you know by technology by development by pioneers and, and so on right absolutely yeah yeah so um, also um, you mentioned that uh, one of the goals of your research was to provide an account of the making of the sperm bank in China uh, while not trying to uh, describe it or imbue it with quote unquote Chinese characteristics, so um, I was wondering what led you to this approach. Uh, I I'm fascinated by it, and you know I, I want to learn more about it. Yes. Um, so yeah, I, as you point out, I make a, a kind of uh, kind of uh, um, when I frame the book, I suggest that. You know, one there are many ways one can go about similar tasks. Uh, so, uh, you know, if we want to, to uh, you know, describe the use or the the circulation of assisted productive technologies in whatever country we might work in, of course, we have a whole host of uh, approaches that we can be inspired by. Now, uh, there's two answers to your question, and one is 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 very honest, and that you know, through through my ten years of uh, episodic fieldwork, going back and forth. Um, I'm, I'm perfectly honest also in the book in saying that my language skills were never, uh, in my opinion, never got to a level where I would feel comfortable, you know, um, necessarily making conclusions about, um, you know, what, what, whatever is Chinese, I didn't think was for me to, to have uh, an analytical um, uh, position on. Now, I, I, I realize that uh, in, in saying this, I'm immediately going to be then uh, it, it's going to be suggested. Well, then how can you say anything about um, anything in, in China? And I believe I make a strong case in the book that it is possible. But for the exact reason that I just pointed out, you must acknowledge when, whatever kind of methodology you, you approach, what your limitations are. So in suggesting that that what I'm doing is telling the story of the routinization of sperm banking, the making of sperm banking in China, my empirical object is the sperm bank uh, and as a technology. So I, as a detective, you know, um, put together the pieces in terms of 
piecing out both a historical process on the one hand through archival work and working with research assistants whom I acknowledge and who are you know amazing uh, collaborators throughout the process but also at the same time you know uh, carrying out um, ethnographic research which really has the technology uh, at its heart so uh, to be honest, I would not have started a project which really in, in in-depth ways explored the life worlds of, of infertile couples in China because, or if I had, I would have started by investing a lot more in terms of improving my language skills. Um, so th- so that's the first answer. The second one is that I think the, distic- the, the distinction is important. So what is Chinese sperm banking as opposed to sperm banking in China? Um uh, I uh, am of the firm conviction that, you know, uh, the, the technologies that are in use, uh, you know, the cryo tanks, the, you know, the microscopes and, you know, the, 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 the tests, the biomedical tests, this, you know, for me, I'm agnostic. This could be in Ecuador. It could be anywhere. These are the same exact technologies. But by focusing on in China, what I can do is show the very specific form because the form is different, the configuration or what I call the style. China has a style of sperm banking, which is so unique. And for all the reasons that I I kind of show in the book, uh, and I could travel to, you know, Denmark where I live or to Finland or to Bolivia and do an equal, equally kind of, in my opinion, fascinating study of of which style of sperm banking has emerged in a a specific country. Um, So those are the kind of two answers I would give to that, that I think that, that, that's an important point to make, um, that there's a distinction, an analytical distinction. Yes, absolutely. And, um, you know, also we have to take into consideration the historical um, conditions and period when and all, all of this is happening. Because, you know, if we are to extend your, your example about Ecuador or Bolivia or, you know, even Eastern Europe, um, yeah. right, like it doesn't happen at the same time. And it does, right? Um, and it doesn't happen at the same pace or, you know, with the same routes. Uh, and one example that you have uh, and Dr. Lu uh, uh, gives is uh, the, using, the, the use of egg yolks, uh, right, in, in the, the preservation of, of sperm. So, um, I mean, I, I personally do not know if this has been used, for example, you know, in Latin America or somewhere else. But um, it's a very specific, um, you know, example and path that we have to take into consideration. So, um, yeah, yeah, no, exactly. And, and, you know, providing these kinds of empirical accounts of, of makings of and, uh, you know, for for I, I realize that not all of our listeners are necessarily working in the field of anthropology, but, you know, um, the. Ethnographic fieldwork uh, for for all kinds of very important reasons, of course, have uh, traditionally and historically focused on a certain peoples. And of course, in recent years, that's changed because more than humans have become part of the equation. Science technology studies has has had its influences, just like anthropology and anthropological methods have influenced science technology studies. So a lot of things have happened. And that's why I think it's important that that one is quite explicit about what is the task of, of, of your study. And in my case, my task was I set myself the goal of accounting for uh, a very basic fact, and that is that sperm banking in China in 2007, when I started, was a fully established and routinized practice which, you know, was, was going on, people were using it, um, uh, it was uh, w- relatively well publicized, relatively cheap if it's an insemination. Uh, so 
I don't think we should just take for granted, oh, because it was invented in, in one part of the world, then it's totally normal. It will be natural that it will establish itself somewhere else through some kind of natural uh, development or globalization process. I, I just don't find that analytically satisfying. So I think we, we should be you know, wedded and committed to always telling uh, these very localized stories of how something could gain a foothold, could gain traction, could, could settle, could stabilize. And in a very specific form, as I said, a style of sperm banking very unique to China has coalesced. And I think that's one of our tasks as scholars. There's so many other tasks, but I think this is one of them that we should be um, pursuing. Sure, absolutely. And um, I think you also have a a, um, a specific methodology that, that you adopted in the book because you're not only proposing a new approach, you know, to talk about this the, the specific style, right? But also you're making an intervention in the field, right? Or with... Uh, um, you know, multiple, like approaching, um, you know, your, your object of inquiry. So, yeah, I, yeah. exactly. So, um, you know, I was wondering whether you could tell a little bit more about that to, to the listeners, because, you know, um, before we, we read the book, you know, maybe we could listen to this interview and kind of get get some idea, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, you know, the thing about, uh, you, so I, I coined this term assemblage ethnography or proposed this term assemblage ethnography in the book. It's what I've been doing myself, uh, you know, in my PhD on traditional herbal medicine in Vietnam. Um, uh, so it's it's just something I've been doing. But I decided that I'm now I'm going to write about what is it I'm doing. And then I, I've called it this. But the point I also make in the book is that actually many people have been doing this uh, in all kinds of um, settings uh, ethnographically, but no one's really, I mean, we have had uh, multi-sided ethnography um, uh, written about since 1995, but I, 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 that I, I don't see assemblage ethnography as the same as multi-sided. So uh, basically where it arises from is my, my own kind of disciplinary, disciplinarily nomadic background. So I have a a background in development studies, my master's degree, and then sociology, and now working in anthropology. So I've always been interested in the big picture, combined with, you know, right down to the nitty-gritty every day of, you know, in this case, reproductive technologies. So, you know, there's been divisions of labors between disciplines, right? Sociology, you know, to say things very kind of, uh, you know, in, 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 much to kind of black and white terms, has had that big picture kind of uh, reputation of having sweeping large, you know, um, um, analyses of whole societies, whereas the ethnographers were the ones who went right down to the, you know, the, the local levels and perhaps didn't always capture the, the, the bigger picture in their stories. Now, because of my background and then, you know, throw in some uh, interest in, in the Foucauldian kind of archival method and his interest in problematization you know, then for me, I cannot do ethnography in any way. I, I simply am, and, and it boils down to this, it boils down to the fact that for me, we, and I include myself in this as an academic, as a scholar, all of us around the world, wherever we are, as much as I love to celebrate our ingenuity, our, our creativeness, our, you know, tinkerings, we have all kinds of vocabulary to give agency to our informants who are in, you know, in very, you know, uh, all kinds of situations around the world. But in in my, you know, humble analytical opinion, those actions, those tinkerings are always completely and utterly anchored so heavily. You know, I call it the heavy accumulation of uh, knowledges and practices, all of us, that, you know, 
we we are a part of these much larger complexes. So the reproductive complex in China uh, is so important to analytically account for if I want to understand the technology, but also the uses uh, by by the couples who are who might be pursuing them. So I'm, I, it's just something I cannot not do. I have to get you know what I call the macro, meso, and micro levels um, when it comes to understanding you know in this case. Uh, the sperm banking in China, but it could be anything. It could be traditional medicine in Vietnam, or currently I'm working on chronic disease in, well, in my case in Denmark, but other in the project are working in different parts of the world. So that that's 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 what assemblage ethnography is for me. It, it allows for a way to carry out um, uh, anthropological ethnographic research, not into a, a certain group of peoples as such, but the emergence of a specific problem and the way in which that problem is addressed. That's fascinating. That's, um, you know, um, I, I agree with, with, with that. And I think it's, um, it provides actually the, you know, the three layers, of course, there are m- many more, but, you know, the macros, <laughs> uh, but, you know, um, starting with the three levels of, of vision and analysis, I think not only provides, um, uh, you know the bigger picture and also the uh, the nitty gritty as as you mentioned, but allows you to um, you know structurally and conceptually move between these layers and understand what is happening. And you know with with the the opening up given by globalization, it's easy to fall into this trap that uh, we mentioned you know twenty minutes ago of uh, just transportation of technology from one place to another, or you know just importation of concepts and so on. But when you have these three layers, in my opinion, I think um, that danger is slightly staved off for a little bit, and then you can uh, can do, you know, a better kind of uh, capturing of of, of events. Um, and you know, speaking of a frame and uh, about you know details, specific details, I think chapter one um, uh, talks about uh, you know assisted reproductive technology and the way it came around to China. But it does set up the frame for the le- uh, later chapters, right? Because um, both historically and um, you know uh, in terms of the tra- trajectory of the book. So um, you did mention a little bit at the beginning of this interview uh, about the two. two main figures um, in China, uh, Dr. Lu and Dr. Zhang, but uh, could you say a little bit more about the ways in which the technology was acquired and, you know, how it got positioned in Beijing and in Changsha? Yeah, yeah. So just kind of very quickly. Um, so as, as we, we briefly mentioned, there's these two key figures and one is uh, an obst- obstetrics gynecologist uh, uh, working in Beijing um, at the third hospital, and Lu Guangzhu then is working at uh, uh, in, in, at the university, uh, Central South University in in Shangsha, which is the capital of Hunan Province. And her father is a prominent medical geneticist. So, very independent of each other, they start getting interested in reproductive technologies. Professor Zhang, because she meets patients who are, you know, apparently coming for, um, a, you know problems related to their menstruation and other kinds of uh, gynecological um, um, troubles that they might be facing. But as she recounts, actually, most of the patients are coming because of infertility. So she kind of just runs into infertility as this rather overlooked and major issue. Whereas Professor Liu uh, is introduced by her father 
um, uh, for for quite um, you know um, uh, explicitly uh, eugenic reasons. So her, her father had become convinced that these kinds of technologies could be used to to uh, identify um, uh, unhealthy embryos and to avoid having them implanted. And indeed, that's what's what's happened with the technologies through the years. So. So Professor Liu's entry was through medical genetics. And as I kind of suggest in my, my, the first chapter, it, it turns out to be a propitious or a kind of a, a very kind of um, uh, coincidence, but uh, way, in ways that, that allowed for the technology to move forward because um, uh, the, the marriage of medical genetics with, with um, the kind of clinical concerns of, of patients who are infertile was exactly what allowed them then to 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 locate what they were doing within the goals of the, the national government and get some funding. Um, so without medical genetics, I'm suggesting it would have had at least a much harder time in terms of uh, the, the speed with which it eventually was um, um, developed and then, yeah, completely uh, routinized in China. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, I think that was one of the, you know, the, the paths that it, you know, allowed it to survive, uh, at least bureaucratically, and then, um, you know, develop further. And um, you did mention just now the, the, the concept of quality, uh, right? And I think um, from chapter two uh, onwards, um, th- there's way more discussion in the book about it. Um, and, you know, it Nonetheless, it is quite timely and, you know, of great import today as well, given the social credit system taking uh, taking up in China and, you know, uh, everything that, that's happening. And not only in China, you know, but we are talking about it right now. But I think there's uh, this uh, social credit system and quality of population can be can be addressed in many other contexts. But, you know, not to diverge. Um, I was wondering whether uh, you could, um, you know, just talk a little bit about the concept of quality as it was related to the assisted reproductive technology in China. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, I mean that, that the book ended up being called "Good Quality," and uh, and in some ways that's uh, it, it makes sense because of what what what, what the, the the core kind of focuses on sperm banking, and that's that's obviously what what is uh, at stake. But very early on, it just became so clear to me that you know there's one thing that that uh, ties together if sorry if there's one thing that ties together uh, the reproductive complex in China and pr- probably anywhere else in the world that is um, uh, ongoing relentless continuous uh, what I call kind of vital assessment so the assessment of the qualities of be it a person a donor um, uh, a couple uh, a, a sperm cell, Indeed, in, in China's case, uh, the entire population. So that vital assessment, like what is good life um, and how those valuations take place is really kind of the red thread that runs throughout. And I found it fascinating that it was, you know, from population quality, which is this aggregate um, form of quality, which takes in into account the entire nation. You know, we can gradually move down from that to, you know, the qualities of, of the so-called High quality, uh, you know, urbanites who have gone and and have have uh, educations versus the the so-called low quality um, rural uh, peasants who are working in farms and don't have educations. So that distinction is is almost binary, you know, putting to uh, um, uh, two um, uh, 
kind of population groups in contrast to each other using uh, quality. And uh, then finally, you have kind of the, the level of the individual with the sperm donor and uh, the uh, sperm cell at the very end. So, you know, all the way from population right down to um, uh, to uh, the the level of the cell that that I found fascinating. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I think uh, even more um, in in a later chapter, you you talk about this when, uh, you know, we get into details about the, the donors themselves and the the teams going, uh, you know, outside of Changsha to to um, to find donors, right? Um, the mobile mobile teams. But I'll get back to this uh, a little bit later. I just wanted to ask um, in relation to chapter three, um, you do bring in the concept of exposed biologies, uh, a term that connects the environment, uh, fertilization, infertility, and family planning policies, um, and uh, you know the way in which quality stands uh, in chapter two as this nexus. Uh, exposed biology, in my opinion, uh, stands in, uh, you know, as a as a crossroad in chapter three. Um, so, um, you know, um, I was thinking about um, kind of asking you to to expand on that and uh, tell us how it's, um, you know, it's a it's a new concept that when thinking about China, it connects more um, of the environment yes. to these policies, right? Absolutely, yeah. So I, I think, you know, anyone who's been working in, in, uh, in China, in whatever capacity, visiting, living there, staying there, you know, it, it's just so unavoidable not to be struck by how present, you know, their current, um, you know, environmental challenges are. And <clears throat> this was no different in, in uh, not just in my own fieldwork and my experiences as, as, as a person who visits and lives in China for extended periods of time. But really, you know, for the field itself. So I think um, uh, many people have been, uh, you know, in recent years uh, theorizing and, and trying to, you know, get to grips with, you know, basically probably one of the major uh, challenges facing, well, the, the entire uh, global community. And that is exposure. And uh, a lot of the stuff that we've been um, uh, reading about and, and learning about when it comes to Anthropocene, for obvious reasons have had to do with, you know, the, the planet and, you know, planetary resources and, and, and climate change and global warming and basically, you know, the very possibilities for us, us, us to survive as species uh, at stake kind of thing. But, you know, in this, this chapter, what I'm really trying to suggest is that, yes, of course, but at the same time, you know, uh, there is an anthropocentrism uh, always bound up in an anthropocene, and that anthropocentrism is centered on the very bodies that we inhabit. And there are, you know, growing groups of scholars who are seriously concerned about everything that's entering our bodies. And in a similar way that you can look, you know, for traces of human activity in glacial ice cores or, uh, you know, the, the chemical compositions of the sea, that's what's happening. We are looking for traces of our own uh, human activity within our own bodies. That could be in blood samples. It could be carcinogens uh, in, in found in our tissues. It could be, you know, um, traces of chemicals found in our semen. Uh, so exposed biologies, I think, becomes so crucial. Um, I mean, it's a concept I've developed, but I think it works as a heuristic to really allow for a very specific kind of critique that we see in China. So when I started the book, 
project uh, doing the research, it was almost not possible really to talk about pollution because it was seen as a way to cr criticize the, the, the state and, and the government's policies. But by the end of it, my God, you I mean, you go to China, people are worried. They're talking about it. The government finally is, is kind of uh, starting to, to take some kinds of actions, at least. And that transition for me has to do with exposure. Uh, and the very brute reality of exposure, something that is intimately bound up with eating, drinking, uh, um, water, you know, eating food, just the very basic vital activities that we have to carry out, um, uh, you know, just just to live. So, yeah, I think exposed biologies, I think that's very well put. It really became the, the kind of uh, that chapter really binds the book together in, in so many important ways. Um, yeah, I think so. And I, I, you gesture towards, um, um, you know, other scholarship done by Adriana Petrina, for example, uh, right, in relation to Chernobyl, and also, um, um, you know, uh, other scholars who have talked about Bhopal. In and in India with yes. the chemical disaster there, and uh, yes. Michelle Murphy, who's looked at how buildings, the buildings we live in are, are you know, we're seeping, chem or chemicals are seeping into us just from the buildings around us. And, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I think that connects, um, you know, indirectly, um, uh, you know, if you if you look at the, you know, history of housing or, you know, um, globally, I think um, it, it gestures um, a little bit towards, um, you know, different um, different cycles of of discovering something new, right? Uh, when asbestos was first uh, used, right, it was a great material, but then it turned out to be you know, not that um, not that healthy for the population. So I think it's it's another way of of thinking of being you know meta critical and thinking about humanity at large. And through this idea of exposed biologies um, and how technology and development uh, that you know they do leave a trace um, on our bodies. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 you know, mm -hmm. increasingly, regardless of where we are in the world, uh, just, was it yesterday, there was a study, was it from the Arctic that, you know, it's raining plastic in, in the Arctic. So, you know, this idea that, oh, we can just escape to some far remote corner of the, the, the world to be unexposed. It's not possible anymore. Exposure is here to stay. And we of course have to address it medically and, and legislatively, but we need to, uh, account for it analytically, theorize it, and 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 think with it. Sure, absolutely, I think so. And um, of course, you know um, that will uh, play a, a very important role in the study of you know epidemics or the study of of chronic diseases and so on, because you know the environmental factors are there. Um, but you know, I, I'll I'll get the discussion back to to the book and you know the chapter four. Um, that follows. Uh, and uh, here, I think in chapter four, you do give more details about the efforts to mobilize sperm donors uh, in a way. Um, and, you know, of course, this chapter builds on the, the previous uh, previous examples that you give. Um, but I think the procurement efforts um, have a special role uh, in the book because it does, they do speak about the, the mindset of, of the people and about quality of, you know, uh, of um, quality both of, of semen, but also quality of people as perceived, right, um, in, in their quality of donors. So, um, you know, 
um, could you say a little bit more about these efforts and uh, this mobilization uh, effort? Yeah, absolutely. So th- I have to say that um, this chapter and the research behind it is amongst some of the most fun research that I've ever done. Um, <laughs> Great. There, there's, I, I hope it uh, is also for the reader, but I, you know, I try to include some of that humor in the way that I write because, you know, we're dealing, not dealing, but working with um, uh, young uh, college students um, uh, who have decided that they, you know, they'll come down to the sperm bank and, and some of them might not have thought it uh, quite, uh, you know, through. And so I'm not trying to, in that sense, uh, minimize some of the potential consequences that I also write about that, you know, 20 years down the line, they, you know, they, they, they may, you know, some of them may end up regretting that they have done this. So I'm not trying to minimize the, the kind of ethical issues at stake, but working, you know, these are adults, they are, they are young students who are, you know, they're having a good time, they're earning some money. And uh, that whole recruitment process in China is really kind of shaped by that. Um, but it's, it takes, again, in terms of a style of sperm banking, it takes a very different form. It's always helpful to be a bit comparative. So I, I live in Denmark, which is home to one of the largest sperm banks, Cryos, which I write a little bit about in the book. And, you know, here it's very easy to to put out, you know, full page ads in university newspapers and, and of course, also use humor um, as a way to try to, to, to attract donors. And you do it at universities in Europe um, uh, for the same kinds of reasons, because intelligence and so forth. But the difference is that in, in China, uh, all this is going on very much kind of behind the scenes in the sense that the, the official materials online or as flyers that you see is very kind of uh, low key. They don't want, you know, it's, some people might still find it, you know, it's it's sex, it's sperm. So, so they really keep a low key. But, you know, as soon as you do the ethnography, you talk to the recruiters, you have a chance maybe to, to follow them to the university campuses as I did. And of course, these are, you know, young men and some of the recruiters were the donors themselves. And there's all kinds of, let's, you know, call it what it is, basically college humor around. And this is flying around and it just makes for very kind of uh, funny episodes uh, and uh, in in ways that contrast to some notion of, 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 I don't know, repressed sexualities, if if that ever, you know, was the case at any historical moment. But, you know, any kind of notion that, well, you know, it's taboo, which the, the officials themselves say, you know, we can't be, uh, you know, it's it, we cannot talk so much loudly about this because, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of taboos around sexuality. But college kids are college kids and young young persons have very, very, uh, you know, frank and open kind of discussions uh, when, when I was there, definitely. And so the recruitment is very much kind of the mood is very much shaped by that humorous um, college kind of uh, atmosphere. And that then, of course, is located firmly within, you know, the quality discourse and the the appealing to, you know, the national pride of students. And this is where the key difference comes, because you would never, ever in a, uh, well, it, it would be quite something to find a European sperm bank uh, suggesting that by coming to be a donor, you would improve the population quality of, of uh, you know, the Danish population because of the historical setting we are in, right? Because of the Second World War. So this is very different. And that's what I try to show that it's, it's just a completely different form of interpolation when you're trying to encourage uh, people to become donors, because everyone has a challenge everywhere in the world to encourage people to become donors. But 
the 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 inflections, the the, the styles, the forms are very different. Absolutely, yes, and um, I think it's it's a very important uh, example as well that you give that uh, you talk about the um, um, university entrance exam, the Gaokao, right, and um, how everybody's very nervous about this, and you know it is a, a national event every year, and you know how all of this um, the, the entrance right into one of the top universities, or even just you know in in a program that that will uh, ensure a, a bachelor's degree, um, you know, builds on this, uh, this, this screening of donors and builds on this pride and um, the, right, the, the interpolation, as you call it, right? So it's, uh, yeah, it's, I think it's really interesting. I, I haven't seen any, um, any study so far that links the Gaokao with uh, these particular uh, issues. Um, so, you know, I, it's I, definitely there. The link is definitely there. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yes. Um, and I think uh, from chapter four, uh, you move towards um, the audit process in chapter five. So here, my question is, is very direct, right? So how does one make quality auditable, right? Yes. So the, 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 interestingly, um, um, this this chapter and the way that I wrote it was really inspired by all the work I had done in uh, previously in the field of traditional herbal medicine because that's the key challenge for herbalists and and those working to modernize them is how to quality control what 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 can we do to make the best quality herbal medicines and uh, you know. In some ways, it's 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 very similar. Of course, it's a completely different substance. Semen versus you know um, uh, um, active ingredients from herbal plants are are two different, uh, completely different ballparks. But at the same time, the, this interest in in vi- the vital qualities and ensuring uh, that um, uh, that yeah, you have the as a sperm bank the best quality sperm so that you can uh, use it in treatment. Uh, that that's all well and good. You can say that oh, we have the best quality but as we know in living in the 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 societies the audit societies that we do to use mike power's phrase uh but uh in in the chinese context or uh, from an uh, Matthew Corman's amazing work on uh, disabilities in China. He talks about bio bureaucracies, um, and in China, this is this is it. I mean, you you have to audit not for the sake of uh, you know your your consumer to to certify you know this is good quality, but basically the whole way in which licensing and state um, uh, state authorization works when it comes to medicine in China means that audit is absolutely essential. So the ledger books and 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 you know the Excel sheets and the documentation and the number of uh, paper slips which are signed and countersigned and circulated in the system is mind-boggling. And to be honest, I find you know this kind of uh, ethnography of not just lab, labs, which I did kind of lab ethnography, but almost like office ethnography of the bureaucracy of how you audit and. Uh, and prove and show and uh, and de- de- demonstrate that I'm not just saying we have good quality sperm, but we have good quality sperm. That's what the chapter is really trying to do: is to theorize that um, those audit practices, um, as as I call them, technologies of assurance. So this whole host set of uh, techniques and uh, practices, which have one thing in common. I, I use the phrase uh, vouching for. So those techniques and practices taken together 
vouch for the quality of, of what's in one vial of, of donor sperm because that's all it can do. It can't, you know, uh, and guarantee it because mistakes happen and they're human errors, but you can vouch for it. And you do that by having your papers in order, paper trails, um, you know, all those kind of um, ways that you can cover your backside. Let's put it like that uh, in legal terms. Uh, I think make up these technologies of assurance. And I hope that the concept can travel because, as I said, it would be just as or is just as relevant in the field of herbal medicine. And I believe anywhere where quality control is at stake, I think technologies of assurance is one way we can conceptualize that. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, if you're thinking about, uh, you know, the international travel of, you know, um, organs or blood or you know even semen or uh, anything right um when things uh travel across borders is even more um fascinating to see this paper paper trail yeah, right? yeah, yeah. That, and um, call, call me a nerd but i i you know following paper trails for me is is i i i, I get all uh, giddy i i love it <laughs> i think it's fascinating yeah it is absolutely yeah uh, I share the curiosity, so I understand. Yes, and um, right. So, and but then, uh, right in chapter six, I think we we go a little bit uh, away from this 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 process of auditing, and um, right, we we talk um, about the the process by which accepting sperm from a donor became something comprehensible and even desirable um, for for couples. Right, so. Um, I think um, that had to do, um, right, so accepting, uh, accepting a donor influenced family dynamics, right, and the process of identity formation and, and the like, um, both in the, the core family that uh, could not have children, but they could after assisted reproduction um, uh, by donor, and also, you know, for, for the children that were born and think about their, their own identity, right? So um, I think, uh, right, so chapter six, as the last chapter in the book, uh, addresses that. And I was curious about your own take uh, on, you know, family dynamics and, and, and these, uh, these processes. Yeah. Uh, so this, this chapter was, um, of course, you know, in contrast to, I, I mentioned the kind of humor of, of the donor side, um, um, you know, while acknowledging that there are serious uh, ethical considerations there as well. But this, of course, was... Uh, you know, a devastating chapter to write. And, um, you know, here you meet with, uh, and, you know, indeed a lot of uh, classic medical anthropology would be writing a whole ethnography on this last chapter. Um, because I, I chose to do what I did, this was kind of poignantly and fittingly the last chapter, because in a sense, I kind of followed the followed the sperm, if you could put it like that, that, you know, you procure it and then you, you quality control it. And then finally some, some uh, couple will, will make a decision that they would like to access uh, donor sperm. So it kind of made sense for me to be at the, the end of the book. Now, so, you know, the, there are two things that we, we need to keep in mind. Uh, you know, the, the, well, everyone who's worked in China knows this, that, that family lineage and, you know, patriarchal uh, family forms, um, you know, are absolutely crucial to understanding the, the, the kind of familial cultural um, uh, settings that, that the, at least in, in, in many of the, the kind of um, population groups that we find in, in China. So third-party donation, uh, you know, as a, uh, you know, by, by definition is, is a disturbing factor, right? It's introducing 
building another lineage potentially, uh, or or indeed, uh, if, if court cases arise in, in in empirical ways, into a family, and that's why I ended up focusing on, on mafan, the, the this kind of notion of trouble, mafan, um, because it popped up so many times, both on the donor side, on the doctor side, and on the the, the recipient uh, couple side. That what linked together their um, uh, reflections on and reasonings about the use of third party uh, third parties in reproduction was that they wanted to do things in a way that avoided trouble so I call them trouble avoidance kind of strategies and by that what is meant is that they don't want anything to disturb that perhaps it's idealized visions of harmony but the sense that a family unit is organized by uh, lineage and you know through through many you know uh, kind of uh, generations and, and the so forth and all of a sudden um, for for whatever reasons a, a third party kind of enters that so donors are concerned that someone might come and knock on their door 20 years later and and disrupt and trouble their you know harmonious family life by then uh, uh, recipients are worried about the gossip of neighbors um, about family members uh, disowning and suggesting that that's not your real child making fun of the the male um, and doctors are, um, as I show, very concerned about, you know, the potential disruption of exactly that family life. And, you know, what the, the thing that comes out of the chapter for me is that, you know, even with uh, situations where it is male factor infertility and the use of a sperm donor that's at stake, honest to God, I know that the, the men are suffering a lot. And I show that in the book. But if we look at infertility in China or anywhere else in the world, the burden in very disproportionate ways falls on the woman. Uh, and, you know, there are so many sad, tragic and, you know, horrendous stories. And I kind of tell a few of them in the book that uh, infertility is surrounded by. And I don't think we should ever forget that um, because that's why, you know, these technologies have gained the traction that they did. If they didn't have an audience that accepted their use, then there wouldn't be routinized sperm banking in China. It would just be some small thing that researchers did. But now it's spreading. It's gaining traction because of the tragedies that that drive and and kind of guide people to to fertility clinics. Absolutely, yes, uh, definitely, and um, specifically on the on the coast areas, right? It's um, it's a booming uh, booming process, right? That and specifically after. Um, Right uh, after the the policy that allows two children has rolled out, um, it's even more uh, it gained even more funding and more 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 traction. Right. So yeah, and definitely. I, I tell you what, and and of course this is how the book ends, right? And you know, I was just I don't know. It's you know, uh, fortune is the wrong word, but in terms of uh, being an excited researcher. You know, I, I'm writing this book and from the beginning, absolutely, it's still one child policy. It's still restrictive. It's, you know, this is the frame. And lo and behold, while I'm writing this book, all of a sudden the tables are turned. And as I write in the kind of coda that, that you know, now fertility clinics from having been this difficult thing that had to kind of smuggle its way into a very restrictive reproductive complex Honestly, now it's one of the, let's put it like this, allies of what is going to become and in the process of becoming one of the most pronatalist uh, government uh, kind of state uh, states in the world. 
And my goodness, what a, what a, an about face. And think of all the tragedy that the one child policy brought in its wake, forced sterilizations, forced abortions, um, uh, unfulfilled wishes on families' parts. And now you're, you're, you're desperately um, um, appealing to your population, to your citizens to, 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 to get busy and, and start producing babies. It's, I, I, I don't know. I just find that so, wow, astounding um, that, that, that that's where we are. And indeed, I need to, to now write the next book about low fertility. <laughs> <laughs> right. Or, you know, um, just people not wanting to have children, right? So yeah. if you think about the reverse, um, you know, not uh, just the, the population uh, having a reversed attitude, right? So yeah. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, the next book needs to, yes. to come out. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No, I, I, I need to get, get out there, apply for some money and, and start looking at from infertility to low fertility. Yeah. It's- yes. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, we, we've got to the, to the conclusions part of the book and uh, there, you know, words such as routinization, style, superior births, birth control, life uh, or living, right, uh, take the center stage. Um, so, uh, you know, I was wondering whether um, we could um, tell the audience the unique way in which you see these concepts and realities connecting uh, after you've done all the research, after, you know, policies have changed, after, you know, all of this, um, you know, how how are these still connected? Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, what I, what I hope one of the contributions of the book is that, um, you know, routinization is in the subtitle and it's definitely what I'm, among other things, really trying to theorize and and develop. And I do so, you know, by, you know, fully acknowledging that, you know, indeed, many of the the colleagues I've been, you know, inspired by and and who I have the good fortune of working with uh, these days, whether it's, you know, uh, uh, Raina Rapp or Sarah Franklin or, you know, so many of these amazing scholars who have kind of trailblazed the anthropology of reproduction, it's not that the 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 idea of routinization is is new people have written about it but i really hope to have kind of theorized it and and developed also a methodological uh, frame a kind of approach as as we talk talked about um uh, to to um, you know really to provide a concept that I hope can you know travel and not just in reproduction in all kinds of settings and the the thing that connects it for me so specifically to China is this question of scale um, and you know I in many moments in the book I just stop up and remind myself that the kinds of you know the the mind blowing moments that I'm having that have to do with scale the sheer numbers uh, that are at stake when when you work in China whatever you work in I mean the, just the sheer numbers um, I think uh, you know uh, make uh, a concept like routinization even more helpful because if there's one thing that that uh, is necessary for uh, you know a country uh, or a province within that country uh, to to function and I'm thinking about you know provision of food so that people can eat on a daily basis, um, healthcare, of course, um, you know, whatever social activity um, that, that organizes um, uh, peoples um, uh, that, that might be taking place in China, the scales are just astonishing. So I think routinization uh, in China has a, sp- a specific poignancy that I, I, I hope, of course, have demonstrated, but I think really helps us to get to grips with, um, you know, 
social organization has always been at the core of, of what social science, uh, sociology and anthropology have been investigating, you know, whether it's in a smaller uh, village setting or in, in, in larger settings. But I'm, I'm hoping I've contributed to kind of a scaled up, you know, at the level of, you know, the, the kinds of numbers that are at stake in, in China, that, that we need also to theorize social organization on that scale. Um, so that's what I think ties it together. And then quality is kind of that concept, which um, uh, in, in the case of reproductive technologies allows me then to kind of follow the, the processes of uh, routinization, right? From, as I said, from the population to population groups, uh, individual persons, and right down to molecules and, and, and cells. So yeah, I, 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 I hope that I, I kind of managed to tie these things together in, in, in the book. And um, I'm definitely very proud, proud of the book. It's been 10 years in the making. So um, I hope the care is, is also present in, in, in the book. It, it definitely, the tone is definitely there. Um, I think, and um, it, you know, the chapters do follow one after the other very, very smoothly. And you, you can, you know, as a reader, in my opinion, you, you follow the, the, the story, both, you know, as a story itself, but also, you know, in terms of concepts and, and analysis, um, even if, you know, you don't know too much about, uh, about, you know, what IVF is, or, you know, AID or or so on. So um, that's so nice to hear. Thank you. <laughs> sure, absolutely. I mean, I the, all of these were new to me. Um, my research is uh, somehow adjacent, but not specifically in this. And you know, it was very uh, very easy to follow. So uh, I guess you know that's um, uh, probably uh, among the best kinds of compliments one can receive. Thank you. <laughs> great. Thank you. So um, I think we we have already taken a lot of your your time. So I was wondering whether you could tell us about your current projects and um, you know your your work right now. Yeah. So um, yeah, absolutely. I'm always excited to share um, ongoing stuff. Um, so I, I, I'm not finished with fertility, as I as I mentioned. I'm definitely going to be coming back to it. But right now, I, I'm I have the good fortune of of having uh, a European Research Council, uh, what's called the Starting Grant. I mean, they're five-year grants. Let me please put in a plug for the European Research Council, one of the last bastions that allow researchers to do slow research. You know, over five years, I've been able to employ, you know, three, uh, or actually four, because one uh, got a job. Uh, you know, amazing postdocs who could do kind of in-depth, you know, three years to do in-depth fieldwork. So that's a plug for that. But basically, it's about uh, the, the the emergence of uh, chronic disease all around the world. And what we're trying to investigate is the ways in which, if it's the case that people are living with uh, conditions as opposed to dying from, while fully remembering that many people die from, you know, unnecessarily from uh, so many conditions around the world. This is this is should never be forgotten. But, you know, all over the world, whether you're in Africa, Asia or Latin America, people are living with their diseases. And if that's the case, and this is where quality comes in. So, you know, from my work on traditional herbal medicine to reproductive technologies to now chronic disease, quality is, is continuing to to kind of shape my interests because the qualities at stake here are what is a good life with a chronic condition. So we have uh, June Lee working on dementia in South Korea and a man on chronic kidney disease in Austria. We have Natasha Kingard working on type 1 diabetes in uh, Denmark. And we have uh, also Arceli Dokumachi who looked at cancer clinical trials 
as well as myself and uh, Laura Heinsen working on um, uh, predisposition, genetic predisposition to colon cancer. So, you know, these different ethnographies together give us insights into the ways in which, again, you know, a chronic condition kind of complex has uh, coalesced and stabilized. So you can see, I, I, I just can't let go of the big picture and, and, and trying to locate it. And, and in this case with a team and, and working with a team has just been, wow, just, just brilliant. And, you know, amazing young scholars who uh, are trailblazing in all kinds of ways. That's great. And it's so fascinating and, um, you know, gets into all sorts of, of questions, but also in all sorts of traditions and uh, understandings of diseases and, you know, the, the, the um, you know, path from the acute condition to a chronic condition has been uh, quite, uh, quite prevalent in the past two decades, if not more. So um, I think it's very timely to to talk about these things in these three levels that you mentioned, right? The macro, the meso, and the 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 very detail oriented type of that, way. Yeah, and so we're kind of working with this concept of chronic living um, as something that now is stabilizing and coalescing. And as said, you know, all parts of the world think about HIV um, and ARV treatments. Uh, People are living with HIV in Uganda, in Burkina Faso. Uh, think of, you know, advances in cancer treatment. Some cancer forms now are chronic. Uh, you can live 10, maybe 15 years with some cancer forms. Uh, so things are really, you know, changing in, in the ways in which healthcare is, is being organized and, and, and accessed and received. And, of course, in a you know, global context of health inequality, which we should always, always keep in mind. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, the, the environmental change and, you know, climate change is, uh, is a big, big factor that should not be forgotten in all of this uh, absolutely. study, yeah. right? So um, just before we, we end the interview, I wanted to ask whether there's something that we didn't touch upon and you wanted to, to, to mention. Um, uh, well, no, I just, uh, just to, to, to say that, like I said, I mean, we're, we're hard at work on our, our, our chronic uh, conditions, uh, diseases project. But like I said, ultra low fertility, here I come. I, I can't wait to, to at some point uh, delve into that because this, again, uh, you know, that I talked about the about face in China, the turning of tables in China when it came to uh, restricting birth to now wanting to promote it. So we, we all grew up in a time where overpopulation, this was the major kind of challenge that had to be addressed through development, you know, all that stuff. Perhaps, perhaps, I, this is very controversial to stay, not least in, in, in these grave times of, of climate change and, and challenges facing us, but it could well be that uh, underpopulation is, is now peaking, uh, rearing its, its, its head. Uh, you, you might have heard that South Korea now has a fertility rate of 0.98. That's the first time in world history that fertility rate has, uh, has fallen below one uh, child per woman. Uh, throughout Asia, it's not just low fertility, it's ultra low fertility. And uh, here I come. I can't wait to, to collaborate with uh, scholars in Asia, in Europe, um, um, to start you know, unpacking this quite mind-boggling uh, situation we are uh, facing in the world. Sure. I mean, it's uh, just the idea of zero point anything in terms of, uh, of birth rates is uh, it's very, very puzzling. So I think That's that, not, yeah. 
Yeah, I think we we are all, you know, I can speak for for myself and the the listeners that we are all very excited for the books that you'll write and you'll publish. And um, thank you so much. Um, I I want to thank you very much for talking to to us today. And uh, as I said, we look very much forward to to reading more and learning more from from your research and from your team. And thank you, Victoria. And let me also just say what a wonderful in initiative New Books uh, is. And I think uh, this is for all of us as scholars. We This is what we want to do, right, is share our, our insights, but also to listen to our, our colleagues uh, uh, share, share their experiences. So keep up the amazing work. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.